0: Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Nobody Likes Casey McLean podcast. This is Casey McLean. I'm recording this episode at almost 11 o'clock on Memorial Day. So I realized at some point today that I have not made a post thanking... Um, our fallen troops, and it's not because I'm not thankful, I've, uh, I'm trying to use social media beneficially, but I'm, oh, first off, I'm back, baby, I don't sound great yet, Um, my throat feels better in some ways, but I'm still healing from my tonsil removal, the doctor told me when I said I wanted to do it, after he advised me to do it, by the way, it's not like I went in and I was like, "I these tonsils Look real ugly in my throat. I need some cosmetic tonsil surgery. Um, He said this was my best course of action. <clears throat> it's bad. He's like, it's going to be bad for you. It's way worse for adults. It sucks. I will, He's right. I stand by, um, I almost said my doctor's name and I don't know why I'm protecting him. it's bad i had um i had a stretch where i ate nothing but ice cream and this is how it starts out is that oh jesus this is horrible this is i'm out of practice i'm not a good podcaster um thank you to our troops by the way uh not only the fallen troops but the ones that risk their lives Uh, I do believe that America is a great country. I feel like that is a controversial thing to say as a, uh, as a white dude with a beard. Um, we got problems. We got problems, but, uh, everybody, every place has problems. That doesn't mean we should stop trying to fix our problems, but, uh, it doesn't mean we're not a great country also. It doesn't mean that we don't have a lot going for us. It doesn't mean I'd rather be anywhere else. So, um, with that said, my heroin tonsil surgery recovery—what <laughs> a fucking idiot. Uh, anyway, it was very difficult. I, uh, it hurt so bad to swallow. I found out on around day seven. So it's been, as I record this, tomorrow would be three—the three week anniversary of my surgery i got my surgery on a tuesday and so i guess today is like the 21st day and so day one i come home very swollen and it's but it's like actually surprising how well i was able to talk because it doesn't fuck with your vocal cords at all and also i'm like heavily drugged and i'm taking uh codeine syrup which I can now understand why people take codeine syrup recreationally and also how they can get addicted to codeine syrup very easily and uh why I should not take I'm always I always try to get off of codeine products of opiates as fast as I can because I'm so terrified. This happens in this country so often it's such a common story that somebody that doesn't do drugs recreationally and i only drink alcohol recreationally that's my only uh, mind-altering vice is alcohol and you'll hear about these people who they start out as otherwise unaddicted people people who aren't partaking in in uh recreational drugs and they become addicted to opiates because they had a back surgery or something like that. And I don't want that. I don't think that should be, that's not controversial. I don't want that. So I was actually able to talk decently well, but my throat was so swollen. And those first couple nights, like I slept, I'm always a very like particular sleeper. I can't sleep except in certain positions. And I was so drugged up that it did not matter, <clears throat> and so I actually had to put myself on like a on like a diagonal because or a slant on a ramp, like um with my head elevated, because I was so worried that my throat was just going to close up, because it was so swollen, and you could feel where like the wounds were, the scabs and the wounds, and it was terrible. Um, and then like day three, I was like, oh, this is like a steady path to recovery. I'm feeling pretty good considering. And I stopped taking the codeine stuff. And day four, I tried to work. And at some point during the day, after like three hours of attempting to work my day job, I just like basically wanted to vomit, and I had to stop, and I had to go sleep, and I had to get back. I I, maybe I stopped the codeine stuff a day early. I think realistically, I probably stopped it like four days early because what happened then, and I didn't do like a ton of, uh, I guess I didn't do like a ton of research on what this surgery is like. But I, what happens is you go through these stretches where you are like. I'm getting better. I can swallow with minimal pain. Um, I'm thinking about coming off of the codeine stuff, and then you go through these like peaks and valleys of pain. And so when you're and not even drug related, by the way, it's part of the part of the healing process for tonsils, I guess. Especially as an adult, it's more pronounced. Is you have these like highs and lows. So I would, um like I remember very early on feeling parts of the scab start to come off which is like that's the that's the like indicator of recovery or whatever like that's what you're <clears throat> that's like the the finish line of recovery I'm watching we've had I've had my dog on this podcast if you're not watching the video version I'm doing this in my living room um where I record the podcast is right next to my daughter's bedroom and so I have, I have new time constraints, uh, recording the podcast now that she sleeps in that bedroom. God, I so badly hope I got to look so fat on this, in this position on, uh, on camera right now. So I'm recording in my living room solo podcast. Uh, so like day seven, I hit a peak of pain, a new peak of pain. And I had thought that like day four, I was feeling so good that I tried to stop taking the codeine day seven. I'm feeling so bad. Every swallow does not matter what the contents of the swallow are. If it's saliva, if it's ice cream, if it's water, if I am not heavily medicated, it's unbearable. It is unbearable to swallow. I was what I would do, the method that I took up is I would take they send they send you with liquid ibuprofen, and you're trying I kept trying to find this liquid ibuprofen. By the way, if the, if the hospital ever if, if you ever have to get prescription drugs that are over the counter, they are fucking you on price. So I'm like, what is this liquid suspension ibuprofen? I've never heard of this before. How can I, why can't I find this over the counter? Why would this be controlled? And what I found out is that they call it liquid suspension ibuprofen so that they don't have to call it children's ibuprofen. It is children's ibuprofen, but it is potent and fast acting. You can take, you know, you just figure out the dose. You figure out what amount of ibuprofen you would normally be taking in my life I'm very much I'm not straight edge obviously I talked about drinking alcohol uh, earlier but I try to not depend on medication for pain uh, relief I don't take ibuprofen often but when I do I take the maximum dose If I've reached the point that I'm taking ibuprofen, I am taking the maximum dose. And so I know pretty well what the maximum dose is and what I had to do in order to be able to tolerate swallowing. And I was eating, basically I was eating two milkshakes a day, like big milkshakes. I have these, we have these cups that we bought for camping that are, um, they probably hold like 30 ounces and I would put like 25 ounces of milkshake Twice a day into these containers, and I would also try to drink. I'm even still. I mean, you can, if you're on, if you're watching this on camera, I'm drinking Gatorade out of my uh, little radio friend, friends of the podcast, little radio uh, cocktail jar from when they were doing to-go cocktails last summer. Um, I did, by the way, I was drinking Gatorade on a Zoom the other day, and. In, in like a not well lit thing on a webcam that doesn't have like perfect white balance and lighting, that could be easily mistaken for piss. It looked a lot like I was drinking piss on the zoom. So, um, I'm drinking these milkshakes and the, the only way I could even bear to swallow those is to take like a maximum dose of liquid ibuprofen, like 30 minutes before I wanted to eat eat as fast as I could. Usually the combination of ibuprofen and food would make me need to go lay down because it was not comfortable. It was not good. And so, um, I did that for a long time. And then sometime around day four, I discovered that my grocery store sells this, uh, like short cook risotto. And risotto is already essentially, by the way, I'm sure there's like an Italian person out there who's screaming at my pronunciation of it's risotto or something like that. But, um, it's already like overcooked rice, is basically what risotto is. It's like rice turned into pasta by overcooking is a, is a simplified way of, of looking at it. And I was like, this is like the perfect thing. And day four, I could stomach a little bit of it. And it was the first like savory thing I had really been able to eat since, um, since the surgery. And then literally every meal after that, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And around day eight, I tried to eat risotto and I tried to eat, um, Rice pudding. That was another thing I was trying to just like give me some fucking substance, some texture, give me something. <sighs> and day eight, I had like, I was like on the verge of a breakdown, like on the verge of tears. And I'm like, uh, reading about, I'm like, what the fuck is going wrong? Like, I can't. And I read that, that, that I, so there's like solace in reading about this because. I pull up an article about day seven ish of tonsillectomy recovery. And they were like, yes, this is a very difficult thing for people psychologically. Like people struggle here because they thought they were getting better and now they feel worse than they did a couple days ago. And it was like, oh, this is exactly how I feel. I feel fucking horrible. I feel arguably worse. It hurts maybe more on day eight than it did on day two to swallow. Again, part of that's probably because I'm not indiscriminately sucking down cocaine or cocaine, codeine syrup uh, and sleeping like a cat all day. I mean, I was sleeping like 16 hours a day. And also you get to the point too, and this is just like a husband thing, I guess, or maybe it's like a... Uh, This is like the positive part of toxic masculinity as I start to get to a point in my house where I'm like, I'm so fucking useless. I'm advised against any strenuous physical activity. I'm like literally doped up. I think day four, I still would skip a dose of codeine Syrup so that I could take my daughter to school. So normally I was taken like 8 PM, um, like 6 AM. That's the thing too, is I would just wake up. Oh my God. I would wake up in fucking agony. That's. I wasn't waking up to an alarm. I wasn't waking up out of routine. I, I would wake up when the pain became so unbearable that my body could not stay asleep. That was actually the night when I realized that I. I was like, oh, this is huge progress. Around day, like twelve or thirteen, was uh. I slept through the night after i took a big fat fucking dose of of the ibuprofen syrup um above their recommended dose but i slept until 6 a.m. with no wake ups and i had stopped taking the codeine syrup the there was a dose that i would skip so that i could take uh my daughter to school to daycare was so I was trying to just, it's like, it's like in the early days of pregnancy or of, uh, of after childbirth where you just, as a dad, you feel so fucking useless because you can't do anything because everything the baby needs comes from the mom. And that's where like back there, I'm this useless fucking lump. And not only that, I need my wife to do stuff for me. I need her to like, bring me stuff to drink and stuff. I mean, it's just, you feel pathetic And then that's replaced by just frustration and agonizing pain. (laughs) And then, uh, I had optimistically, I booked a comedy show tentatively around day nine and I had to cancel that. And I hate canceling shows. I did. I talked to the producer way in advance and I was like, Hey man, I'm doing this. I would love to do your show. Uh, unfortunately I have a problem. Like I'm, I'm getting the surgery. So, all this is to say, um, I'm not even good now. I'm not even perfect now. I ended up doing a show with my buddy Gabriel Rutledge, by the way, with whom I will be in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, June fourth and fifth, and then I'm at a Spokane Comedy Club headlining June sixth. I will be at Smead's Pub. In Washougal, Washington, June 17th. I feel like there's another date in there. Let's see. Calendar. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, June 4th and 5th, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. uh, Honey Social Club is where we'll be. June 6th, I will be headlining Spokane Comedy Club. June 12th, I will be headlining... Badger Mountain Brewing in Wenatchee. June 17th, I'm headlining Smead's Pub in Washougal, Washington. Uh, June 24th, 25th, 26th, I will be in Spokane, Lewiston, Idaho, and Spokane Valley, respectively, at a bunch of venues. Check my website. And then on June 27th, I will be doing the brunch show at Tacoma Comedy Club. And headlining Tacoma Comedy Club for the first time, so please come out uh, for those. And by the way, I didn't even—I've never mentioned this on the podcast, and um, I did never intend to because it wasn't uh, something I want—I like necessarily wanted to happen. I wasn't pursuing this in any way, but I realized at some point somebody that I think it's in the show notes automatically for anchor dot com or anchor.fm uh when you host your podcast there but you can support this podcast financially at anchor uh you get exactly the same thing it's just a fucking tip I want this podcast to be big enough to justify a Patreon to justify putting time into a Patreon and I would love it it's good enough for me if you just tell somebody else to listen. Um, Tell them you enjoy it. Tell them it's it's a fucking fat nerd uh, talking about sports in an annoying way, comedy in a, a boring way. <laughs> like give it, give them the truth. Um, but shout out to, I kept getting this, this, uh, I would be looking at my, my, uh, ad money from anchor and I'm like, this seems higher than it should be, but I'm not going to say anything cause, cause, uh, I don't have a problem scamming anchor out of an extra f- five bucks a month. And then after a small amount of investigation, I realized, um, and I, I'm only going to shout him out once, uh, unless you actually tell me, sir, that you're okay with me saying your name. Cause I am going to say your name here and, uh, I'm not going to do it after this in case you're a fugitive from the police. And, uh, if that's the case, I'm sorry to blow up your spot. Um, but Unless, there's I don't think many cops listen to this, so Robert Springer, thank you for donating. He's the one donor I found out that I have one donor on anchor, and Robert Springer, you're the man. Thank you so much it was uh, It was so flattering to find that out. You know you never know what's the thing. you never know what uh what'll happen that's going to make you uh five bucks a month in perpetuity or until his credit card expires and or he gets one of those apps that reminds you that you're subscribed to something you didn't care about that much, it turns out. <sighs> I'm back eating. My first meal back was um What did I have? I had a burger. Yeah, what did I have? It wasn't I had something that was like I was like, oh, shit, I was able to swallow that. And so then I had the next day a burger. And that was like fine, but not great. And then I've just slowly been reincorporating things. I had, I mean, I'm so tired of it that I'm testing the limits more than I maybe should be. But I had kind of an embarrassing, uh, I had like some, like cheese, like spicy Cheez-Its that are not spicy. They're like jalapeno dusted Cheez-Its. They're not spicy. And the capsaicin, a little tiny bit of capsaicin hitting an open wound in the back of my throat was too much. I also, the other thing that I, uh, realized once i started eating more regular food i knew this at the beginning i knew part of this but i didn't know what the effect was going to be uh, in the surgery the something happened where like my tongue got burnt the tip of my tongue got burnt i think maybe the tool that they're using is hot to cauterize like the back of my throat and it must have rubbed against my tongue i don't know what happened but um my the tip of my tongue was like numb and there was no taste and it wasn't, it was like burnt. It was burnt. I think it was burnt. And, uh, I also had like a blister. I had like a, I was, you know, when you start to get, um, I get it when I eat too much salt, but you'll start to get like a, like a taste bud that pops starts popping up or, um, uh, it's almost like you're like, oh, fuck, do I have herpes? Like, I had a burn on my on my lip also. Same type of thing. And it kind of swole up at the same pace, but for the first several days, I couldn't taste salt. And my taste of salt is still not perfect. And the front of my tongue, whatever that, you have, like, overlapping taste regions on your tongue. And I'm my taste buds are fucked still. I don't know. Uh, I've been drinking a little bit of alcohol this weekend, because they stopped taking ibuprofen, by the way, around, I guess it was like day 17. It still hurts, but it's manageable. And I also had some real, you know, when you start, when you, uh, when you're 34 years old and you just start consuming exclusively milkshakes and codeine and Ibuprofen and gatorade it's it can it can be kind of hard on your stomach, and so I stopped taking ibuprofen and i was uh it was tough at the beginning now it's fine it's doable it's not a it's not a problem um it still hurts though. But when I stopped taking ibuprofen, it opened me up to drink with my wife, which is fun. Um, One problem, though, is like I really love craft beer, and like IPAs don't even taste good for me right now. Uh, No beer. I'm not getting, I'm missing like, it's like missing frequencies on a sound wave, right? Like I'm missing parts of what is in this beer. I can't even judge if I like or don't like a beer right now because I know I'm missing huge swaths of the flavor the flavor profile. <clears throat> and then I did comedy with uh my pal Gabriel Rutledge around day 16. It was um yeah, the Thursday the third, I went down to Ricardo's in Olympia. And it was very fun. It was very, very, very fun. It was a producer that I've wanted to work with for a while. I will say... I So I have this joke about eating ass. About how I don't... I'm against it. To be clear. I'm against eating ass. I think it's bad. And I... It's a joke that I'm like, it works pretty well. And usually by the, I mean, I have yet to be in a setting where by the end of it, it's not going very well. And I've recently in recent weeks, uh, recent months leading up to this show, I've been closing with it because it's this thing that like, really, it's like it builds to a lot of very big laughs at the end of the joke. And the producer of the show asked me, he's like, hey, what are you going to close on so I can know and be prepared to help bring Gabe up onto the stage? And I told him, and then there's a part of the joke where I reference a hip-hop song, and this room was full of like, I'd say like one-third of the people in the room were under 55. And then there were a lot of people that were much older, which again, like I get, it's the dirtiest joke I've ever told basically. So I get that it's going to turn some people off. It's embarrassing to tell a guy in a blazer that my final artistic expression is going to be an anti-ass eating joke. And then on stage, I made up a, a point of saying, um whether I should have or not, I made a point of saying that this hip hop, this part that references a hip so hip hop song is not going to connect with some people in the audience. And then after the show, a day or two after the show, uh, the producer sent me a message and he said, Hey, you know, thank you. I really appreciate it. You got a solid act, et cetera. Um, I did get some feedback and I think it's fair that I share the feedback with you. And the feedback was basically like, we liked Gabe, who's everyone should, by the way, he's an incredible comic. Um, We liked Gabe. We thought the opener was okay. The ass-eating bit was a little bit overdone. Uh, First off, I think that's great feedback. Um, I don't even think that it's shitty completely of the producer to, to share it. Especially because if I work for him again, I believe I will have to make the inference that the ass-eating joke is not for his audience. To me, that's the message in sharing the feedback. And I think that's a fair exchange of information to say, like, I know who's coming to my shows. I know what age group of people is coming to my shows and they're not going to like your joke about eating ass. So I do think it's fair for him to tell me, but what I don't like about it and I don't think this is what the guy was doing, but what I don't like about it is I don't want feedback from one person who didn't like the joke ever. Um, maybe the rare exception would be like if I was doing a joke that referenced race and the one person of that race in the room, uh, if that person had feedback, I'd be interested in hearing that feedback. Uh, I'm not the, here's the the reason I say this though is because as a comic, you get feedback. Every time you sell a joke, you get feedback. It's called audience reaction. So, yeah, I don't, I I don't, I am not interested in hearing anyone who's, uh, I'm not really interested in hearing anyone's commentary on my comedy that doesn't do comedy outside of the what buys you literally buys you the right to give me feedback in my opinion um and the right to give any comic feedback is this producer did pay me he is paying me he will potentially pay me in the future If his message to me, intentionally or not, is don't do the ass-eating bit if I book you again, and he books me again, I'm not doing the ass-eating bit. And that's... <clears throat> so, anyway. Boy, what time is it? It is late, by the way. It is now... i am It's 11.15. We've reached... <laughs> We've reached eleven fifteen and I have a list here that I intended to get through. I smoked some ribs today um I've lost my touch. I had a very scary uh grease fire in my smoker in january and it's my I've lost my touch since then I've lost my touch and I've lost my the the uh innocent love of smoking because I was faced with like a pretty scary situation and, um, I smoked some ribs and they just were, they were like a C plus, which is sad. I've smoked some like a minus ribs in my life. There was a time when I thought ribs were just like so easy to do. And now I'm fucking them up. Everybody I'm fucking up my ribs. It's no good. I have a brisket. I bought a brisket that I want to smoke for Father's Day. Um, Am I going to fuck that up? I don't know. My confidence is shaken. I had a good streak of smoking going, and then I almost set my garage on fire and (sighs) traumatized. Uh, so Boy, maybe some of this shit should be kept for a, a different episode. Uh, The Tony Hinchcliffe situation. Tony Hinchcliffe... Um, first off, the original video that came out, as you would expect, was <clears throat> misleading and made Tony Hinchcliffe look worse than he actually was. Now... Someone released, like, a 20-minute version of the video. So to- Tony Hinchcliffe, I guess, the... Tony Hinchcliffe followed a comedian in Austin, Texas named Pang Dang um the part that came out originally was him seemingly unprovoked going on stage and doing a bunch of material about how, or not even material it's stuff that I'm sure that he wrote I mean as the show was uh was going on um It was racist. I've been on this podcast. I've talked about uh, what I'm willing to allow someone to get away with if they're doing a joke. And when I first saw the video of Tony Hinchcliffe and Pang Dang. Yes, it is racist. And by the way, this is when it's. When it's hard to defend that stance is when it's the most important to defend that stance in my opinion. To deny that what Tony Hinchcliffe did was those that those jokes were racist is ignorant and it's it's intellectually dishonest. They were racist jokes. Um also uh I think that the other the other side of this is people will go that well. They weren't even jokes. It wasn't funny. Well, first off, and this is like a becoming a trope for comedians, but well, the late great Patrice O'Neill has a. Okay, by the way, if you are watching this on video, I got a lot of poses going on. I am uncomfortable. I ate, despite my ribs being like a like a C plus. I ate a billion of them, and I my body just doesn't want to fucking. I'm joining a gym tomorrow, you assholes. By the time you by the time you get this podcast, I will have joined Planet Fitness. And I don't want to hear your goddamn opinions on Planet Fitness. But that's – I will say the first thing the guy said when we – because I'm probably going to get the black card so that I can do comedy on the road. Uh, because that one you get to do whatever. You get to go to any Planet Fitness in the country. And his first part of his sales pitch was – We have a lot of Uber drivers who just use these places to pee (laughs) because it's like basically for 12 extra dollars or for $22 a month, you rent access to all these locations. And I think what this guy does not understand is that saying that a bunch of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers are coming to your gym to piss and shit is not a sales pitch. Um... So the Tony Hinchcliffe jokes uh they are racist they're offensive uh i you could argue they're not funny i think if you i think if you watch the the 20 minute the full length video you can understand that they cuz when i fir- the other the other part of it is that when i first pulled up the video i was like is he bombing with this material like he doesn't bomb it's not a bomb But it's very selective editing, and I'm not going to moralize. I'm not going to – oh, Patrice O'Neill, the late great Patrice O'Neill said that jokes, good jokes and bad jokes all come from the same place. And you have to allow people to fail. That's part of comedy. Comedy is like – it's like uh, in baseball if you bat – the the thing that people love to say is that if you succeed three out of ten times as a batter in baseball, you're in the Hall of Fame. Uh, comedy's, like, similar. I think it's probably the the success rate's even lower. Uh, So, these aren't jokes that I don't, um, as I understand. First off, I guess I'll say this about Tony Hinchcliffe. I don't know him. I don't care about him. I think he does a show called Kill Tony that I'm not in love with in concept. I hate that he charges comedians to pay for tickets that, with the hope of performing and they don't get to perform like that on in men, in most cases, most of the comedians who buy tickets to his, his show in the cities where he charges comics do not get to perform on the show. Um, I think he's also been good to some comics. I'm not, I'm not trying to trash him. I'm more making the point that like, I have no bias towards Tony Hinchcliffe. I don't like his, the work of his that I've seen. Uh, I don't, think his show is good for comics, I don't, um, yeah, that's, I guess, it, but I, but I think that what he was doing was, like, very obviously a joke, and sometimes it is hilarious, and I can guarantee you that your favorite comedian, if you are not a comic, or if you are a comic and you're too new to know this, Your favorite comedian is making much more edgy jokes in their group chat than they are. Whoever they are, the wokest comedian that you can think of is making jokes that they don't feel are are acceptable to, to bring to the public in their group chat that are edgier than what they're doing on stage. So he took a risk. (laughs) It obviously did not help him out to take that risk. Overall, probably not a positive for Tony Hinchcliffe. I mean, he's going to be fine, but that's not the point, right? The point is uh, the point of all this cancel culture shit is that they're not going to stop at Tony Hinchcliffe. What if the, instead of a producer saying I have some feedback, if somebody said that my joke was so offensive that I should be fired and they tracked down my day job and, and, um, yeah, that would be, that would be not good. That would be not what I want. I don't think that's what many people want, especially because you find the, the, most people find the topic that I happen to, um find funny, but that offended somebody else they find that innocuous but that's not that that part of what makes that joke fun to tell is the fact that I know some people are gonna start out not liking it. They might end not liking it in this case um so yeah, I don't know, I mean he's gonna be fine, but It's hard to imagine this made him money, and I don't think he should have been penalized for it. I will say this is what the problem I had with it, the problem I had with what he said. There's two things that there's two to me like cardinal sins committed in that exchange. One is Pang Dang uh, recording and then publishing Tony Hinchcliffe's set without talking to Tony Hinchcliffe without asking if he could do it, I think that's fucked up. It breaks. But I I do recognize that when comics band together and uh close ranks, there's a very thin blue line type of perception of that. I I don't think that comics should get a free for all and that all comics should always band together in favor of comics. I don't think that's what they should do, but I do think when they are doing their job, making crowds laugh, taking risks and making jokes, even though I don't like Tony Hinchcliffe's material, particularly I've, I've I'm sure that's not the only joke of his that I wouldn't like. I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that, if I if I knew even more about the way Kill Tony works, I would be even more upset. Even with all that said, I I it's not that Tony Hinchcliffe deserves grace; it's that everybody deserves, every comedian deserves the opportunity to fail, and that goes down to the lowest level comedians. And if you canceled every unnuanced racist joke that an open micer made uh you'd have a lot of canceled people the unemployment rate would be very high because a lot of people try to do comedy um and even then like uh the, these jokes were working and it's not only the fact that people are laughing isn't the only criteria of whether something is is acceptable to say or if it's in good taste or whatever but they weren't bombing they weren't my shit i didn't love them i think especially the thing that i don't like about them actually is that they shit on pang dang's material and i wonder if he if tony hinchcliffe had not shit on pang dang's material because i don't know pang dang i don't know anything about him until this I do kind of think there was a woman who um got kind of famous because she was at a comedy show at a venue where another event was happening and Harvey Weinstein was there and she called him out God if why can't I think of her name? Uh, and she became like kind of famous for that. Let me see if I can if I could find her. Harvey wine because it would be nice to give her credit because I actually think she's become a pretty good um Harvey Weinstein comedian no I don't know oh god we're just gonna get interviews with this lady I don't want that come on come on what's your name she should get credit she should get credit oh Bachman Bachman what is her first name Kelly Bachman who I think has become like a pretty good advocate for comedy since this but became famous early in her comedy career for calling out Harvey Weinstein or calling out that Harvey Weinstein was at this at this venue and I kind of feel like Peng Dang is a sympathetic figure in the time that we live in and uh that's one reason that you could be skeptical that he maybe is just trying to take advantage of the moment. I do think that there is a wonder in my mind if he had just said the racist thing, but he hadn't made it somewhat about not liking Peng Dang's act. Because that's what I'm sensitive about, personally. Call me fat, call me a nerd, call me a fucking hipster or whatever. If you say my jokes suck or are unoriginal or don't have punchline, whatever, like that is a sensitive thing. So, anyway, I didn't like that. I don't like Tony Hinchcliffe. I don't think he should be canceled, though. And uh, yeah, yeah. Seth Rogan. Uh, Seth Rogan did an interview with a British, I'm going to pull up the tweets. I'm going to read my own tweets on this fucking podcast. This is what we've come to, is I'm going to read my own tweets on this podcast. So Seth Rogen posted, or was interviewed by this British um, whatever, and comedians all over the place got mad, because he, they read the headline that said that, uh, Seth Rogen said that jokes don't age well. Okay, so the headline says Seth Rogen says comedians shouldn't complain about cancel culture except jokes don't age well. So here's what he actually said because that's like a very incomplete version of what he said because comedians saw that and the the people you would expect got very mad about it. And if that was all that he said, I would disagree with him very, very strongly but I think whoever wrote that headline, which is often not the writer of the article, but it could be the writer of the article, whoever wrote that headline either didn't understand what Rogan actually said, um, or they wanted to write a headline that was controversial and would draw some of the world's largest influencers to... uh are you against it and to create this like divisive cause it's how do you become fucking famous and everything it's to go against the grain, right? Like right now you, you either have to be an established, I mean, goddamn uh, Anderson Cooper is a fucking, what's that? A Vanderbilt. Like these people are the, the people running the media, the people at the forefront of the media are very often there is a filtration process that ends up making it only the most elite people reach the top of media. Meaning you have to be able to like afford to do an internship for some reason, uh, because your parents are rich. You have to go be relatively good looking and go through these many stages of, of limiting filtration of of pre-selection, <clears throat> and so anyway, the headline said what it said. This is the actual quote: "There are certain jokes that, for sure, have not aged well, but I think that's the nature of comedy." The comedian said, "I think conceptually those movies are sound, and I think there's a re- a reason they've lasted." as far as people still watching and enjoying them today. Jokes are not things that necessarily are built to last. This is something I agree with. This is not what the headline said. This is Seth Rogen saying, listen, sometimes you make a movie and the jokes don't age well, and sometimes they're still so goddamn good that people love them years later. There was an argument in this article or around this article about, um, sorry, like tweet replies about whether blazing saddles could be made now. And it's such a disingenuous conversation about, um, let me give you one more quote here. I think I put one more. He also says, uh, to me, when I see comedians complaining about this kind of thing, I don't understand what they're complaining about. If you've made a joke that aged terribly, accept it. And if you don't think it's aged terribly, then say that. He's not saying if you made an offensive joke in the past that you have to fucking exile yourself. You have to excommunicate yourself from the world, which is the way that's being perceived. He's saying defend your joke if you think it's not so bad. Yeah, that's what everyone's doing. He's agreeing with comedians, and this inflammatory bullshit headline is trying to make you, I think you're stupid, listener. Um, I've been reading this, or I just finished today, this audio book, uh, Bob Gibson, a bi- an autobiography of Bob Gibson. Who, well, If you're not familiar, Bob Gibson was a pitcher in the uh, 60s and 70s, I think sixties and seventies, maybe fifties also. I've always known him as the guy who has the lowest single season ERA in the modern era. One point one two ERA, fastball, like a hard nosed pitcher. That's what and I've I've known him to be. My understanding of Bob Gibson is that he was like kind of a mercurial asshole. And the book was really good. It's oh shit, what's it called? I think it's called like Stranger to the Game. Let's see, let's see. Stranger to the Game. And so it's from, uh, it's from, I'm going to end up accidentally playing it out loud here, but it's from, where are you from, their book? It's from a little while ago. Title details. Release date was 2014. So Bob Gibson also was a a black man playing in Missouri in the 19, maybe 50s, 60s, and 70s. And that certainly plays a big role in the book. Um, what I loved about the book is it was a moment where you got to hear this guy who's too old to be dishonest and he talked about things in a way um it's like he said some things he would like admit to saying things that were like kind of homophobic or having these thoughts i'm not saying he admitted they were homophobic he's admitting to saying them though he's admitting to feeling homophobia. He's admitting to feeling transphobia. And it's not that him feeling transphobia or saying homophobic things or feeling homophobia are good, but it is true that when somebody will admit to that in 2014, they're being honest with you. You can't deny that. They are being honest with you. So you can probably get, you can probably accept the rest of what they're saying is honest. (sighs) He had this amazing line in the book where he said, uh, I am just a ball player with a personal point of view. I am not an activist with a fastball. And that is such a perfect parallel to how I feel about comedy, which is, uh, I don't want to make my comedy survey social purpose. I don't want that. It's not that I don't think those social, I don't, I, I'm not good enough. <laughs> I'm not good enough at writing that kind of material. Um, and I simply don't think that, uh, I should subject audiences to shitty activism, uninformed activism, um, shit they're not going to be proud to have laughed at in a couple in a couple years shit they're already getting from a billion people uh i'm not interested in it and i'm not i'm not informed enough to have like super nuanced opinions about every political topic um Yeah, he talked about uh he talked about Tim McCarver, who's like a long time uh, like a baseball player but also was a long time broadcaster. And again, I thought I thought it was really cool he talked about how Tim McCarver's from Memphis and grew up racist and overcame his own racism. And that's not the like white savior story that people want to hear. They don't want to hear that Tim McCarver was racist. They want to hear that he grew up in Memphis in the 1940s and 50s and somehow had a 2021 woke outlook on everything. And these guys became like very good friends and other guys did not. And he talks about racism in a way that's frank and interesting and um rational and also like he's... <sighs> You would never read this book. I was talking to my wife about this because we were watching this show, uh, This Is Us. And there's this thing that they do, in my opinion, a bad thing that used to happen on TV is that minority characters would get flattened to their stereotypes, right? It would just be like, this guy is there so that we can write a bunch of jokes about someone being Puerto Rican or a bunch of jokes about someone being black. And what we've almost done is flattened those characters into these, like, beacons of virtue now. Uh, Past podcast guest Chris Allen posted a thing that I think he said that he was going to be the Jackie Robinson of playing a a burglar in a commercial on TV. Chris Allen is a black man. You may notice on security commercials, every burglar, 100% of them is white because that's what's politically acceptable to put on TV <clears throat> not because all burglars are white a representative sample of burglars are probably white and uh also burglary doesn't come from um greed it comes from neglect and poverty right like it, i mean I, I don't know i don't know if that's true from a game theory standpoint the reason I would steal something isn't from greed it would be from desperation so anyway uh it's a really good book I thought it gave me a new I mean obviously it gives you anytime you read you listen for 10 hours or read for for more hours than that uh if you're me if you about somebody you're gonna learn something about that person but I thought it was really good and I, and I love that Bob Gibson wasn't trying to be an activist despite, but, but he perfectly splits the hair between I'm not trying to be an activist, but that does not mean that I don't care. All right. And finally, uh, so this, there's a developing Ellie Kemper story that I wrote some tweets about that you should check out, but I'm not gonna do anything about that now. She got <laughs> Ellie Kemper got uh they got discovered that she's part of a uh, she won a beauty pageant at a fair sponsored by the Ku Klux Klan, and I don't know the truth <laughs> or the the reality. I haven't done any research on it. I can't stop thinking truly, and I put this on Twitter, but I cannot stop thinking about her doing improv comedy to win a beauty pageant at a at a essentially a clan rally. Um okay, speaking of political topics that I'm not informed enough on, the Israel-Palestine conflict has heated back up and it's not especially I live on the west coast. We have I've had in my life a limited exposure to Jewish people and Muslim people. I don't have the historical background or implications at the ready to know how to perceive what's going on there right now what i will say is speaking of jokes my buddy Ron on Hirshberg, another past podcast guest put a great tweet up about this that you can go check out it's uh, it gained some traction it's it's a very funny metaphor comparing receiving his first blowjob to, um, being Israel. I think that's how little I know. I think it's in the, in the story where he's receiving a blowjob, he's representing Israel. He's a Jewish man. Ron Hirschberg's a Jewish man. Very nice guy. I've met his family over the years. Uh, but what was the best part is he got confronted about this, tweet on a podcast that I already listened to which is the comedy seller podcast because I find the owner of the comedy seller to be a fair an actually fair and open-minded person and when he had Ron on on I don't think that was on display from what I could tell this is he's a he's another Jewish man his name is Noam Dwarman. there's another uh, Jewish man on the show named Dan Natterman Dan Natterman's a hilarious comedian. And like I said, I have a ton of admiration for Gnome Dorman. Um And I say that with zero prospects of ever performing at that club, by the way. But what made me the most happy is I listened to the podcast. I thought Ronan acquitted himself well. I texted him. He didn't have my number saved, which is a, is a very uh, funny 2021 millennial thing because we had never texted before. I had his phone number because we did a podcast we'd never texted 100% of our correspondence has occurred on Facebook messenger, which is, I feel like pretty common among comedians. Um, as I'm flipping through YouTube, trying to find something else, it pops up the video of the zoom call where this podcast occurred and Ron on Hirschberg in a conversation with the owner of the Comedy Cellar and a, and a, a very well-respected, long-time comedian, Dan Natterman, is wearing... Nobody likes Casey McClure. No, it was not nobody likes Casey McClure, but he's wearing my comedy merch, baby. He was wearing my comedy merch. Nobody asked him about it. It didn't come up in any of the comments, but he was wearing my comedy merch, and that was pretty cool. All right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you did, I should have some guests back on next week. It's been a scheduling nightmare. It's been only recently that I've felt good enough to talk for an extended amount of time. In fact, the fact that this has gone a little over an hour gives me some confidence that I'll be able to actually manage headlining a a full comedy set. Uh, so come check that out, please. I'm headlining all over the place in the Northwest in, uh, in, June. So please, please come on out. Uh, thank you for listening. Contribute to the anchor thing. Uh, tell a friend, a loved one, a coworker, follow me all over the place. Come see a live show. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon.